We are finishing the saga of Absalom tonight. Uh, it kind of worked out that way. I was going to, I told Derek I was going to take his spot. Well, then he had COVID anyway, so it didn't even matter. So, uh, he's, the, the Joneses, they're doing okay. Uh, they are, uh, not many of them presented many symptoms. Rebecca had some symptoms, but, uh, the rest of them had minor symptoms. So they're, they're doing okay. They're, they're, I think their quarantine is coming to an end pretty quick. So, uh, but I know they appreciate the prayers of the church. Uh, we're going to finish the saga of Absalom tonight. I don't know exactly. I guess we're, we're going to finish out the life of David at some point this year. You know, it's only one or two sermons a month, but uh, we'll finish out the, the life of David over the probably the first quarter of the year. Uh, and then after that, I'm unsure what we're going to do on Sunday nights. I thought we might bring back, we did this before COVID. I thought we might bring back, we used to have one Sunday night a month where some of the different men from the congregation would do uh, either lessons. We did one year, we did testimonials, which I thought was really good, uh, where different men would come up and give they're basically they're how they were converted. Their stories, their conversions. I thought we might do that. Uh, but some things we could do later on in the year for Sunday evening services. Uh, as we think about Absalom, I wanted to do it because we just did it two weeks ago. The final act, sort of a three-part act to the life uh, or to the saga of Absalom and his story in 2 Samuel. Uh, 11 and 12 was the prologue, right? That was the sin of David and Bathsheba. That was sort of the setup, the instigating event. Uh, then 13 and 14 establishes his conflict with Absalom, with Amnon and Tamar and that whole business. Uh, last uh, two weeks ago, we did the, the hero, and I have in quotes, uh, David is the hero, right? His defeat, he's ousted from Jerusalem, and, and he has to run away into Jeru- uh, from Jerusalem, and, and Absalom sort of takes over in Jerusalem and, and takes the heart of the people away. And then tonight, 17 through 19, and again, I have it in air quotes, the triumph, because David doesn't feel like it's a win for David himself. It feels much more like a defeat because it is a defeat for David, right? It is very much going to be that way. Some things to remember from last week, two weeks ago. Number one, I said this would be important, that David, as he's fleeing from Jerusalem, he sends Hushai back to Jerusalem to be his spy, specifically to try to defeat the council of Ahithophel. Say that ten times fast. Ahithophel, who is a wise sage in Jerusalem, who everybody thinks is so wise and so great. Uh, David specifically sends Hushai back with the explicit task, make sure that they don't listen to Ahithophel. We'll see if that comes up to play in this story. Second thing, there's still a couple of priests loyal to David in the city of Jerusalem. This was sort of set up, and you think about if this was sort of a TV show or a movie, that would have been the close of the, the second act. The middle act here is sort of uh, uh, an, uh, a statement of hope, right? That there's still, David's got a few allies, some pieces left to play in this, in this, this saga. Of course, I want to come back to this idea that this is a result, ultimately, of David's sin. This whole story is a result of David's sin with Bathsheba. We've read it many times at the beginning. Nathan comes to him and he says, right, this punishment that's going to be on him, I will raise up from your own house this person against you because of his sin with Bathsheba. This is playing out, and and Nathan specifically says to David, What you did in secret, I will do to you before the people of Israel. We see that here. This is the verse we ended on last week. As Absalom is ousted uh, David from the city, 
Ahithophel, he asks him, give your counsel, what shall we do? We've sort of, we've asked David, now I'm king, what, what should my first act be? And here's what Ahithophel says, go into your father's concubines whom he has left to keep the house and all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father and the hands of all who are with you be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof and he went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now in those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So all the uh, counsel of Ahithophel esteemed, both by David and by Absalom. Here's another undercurrent of the story. We haven't talked about this yet. Another sort of, it's not addressed. It is sort of addressed at the end. What about these women? They're just sort of pawns in Absalom and David's game. It's not their fault. Right? It's not their fault that David sort of neglected his son and, and didn't really take care of Amnon and Tamar and, and didn't really do what he, well, definitely didn't do what he was supposed to do with Bathsheba. I mean, it's not their fault that all this happens, yet here, here they're paying the price for it, right? What about the soldiers who are going to die in this ultimately pointless civil war? It is ultimately pointless, right? We know that in history. David's going to get back to the king. He's going to be taking the throne. It's going to be David's descendants that are on the throne. There's not, no lasting repercussions for the nation. A lot of lasting repercussions for the families. The fathers who are going to die. The children who will be left bereft. The spouses. And yet that's sort of not really addressed in the text. Who is exactly suffering for the sin of David? The entire nation. David is not just the one who suffers. We think about our sin. We need to be very careful about this. We are not the only people who suffer for our sin. And it's more, of course, important. And this is one of the reasons why there's such stringent requirements, particularly for elders in the church, because the higher up a ladder of hierarchy you go the more people are affected by our decisions. In the case of Israel and David, it was the whole nation because he was the king of the whole nation. In the church, for the most part, it's going to be in the local congregation, right? One of the reasons we have this sort of autonomous structure is uh, hopefully corruption in one particular congregation is not going to spread to other congregations that sort of siloed off. But in congregations, especially among the leadership, it's not just the person who sins that suffers. It's the whole group. Now, the next part. Ahithophel continues in his counsel. 17, 1 through 4. Ahithophel said to Absalom, Let me choose 12,000 men. I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he was weary and discouraged. He is weary and discouraged. And throw him into a panic. All the people who are with him will flee. I will strike only the king. I will bring all the people back to you as a bride comes home to her husband. You seek the life of only one man. And all the people will be at peace and all the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel. Would this plan have succeeded? I'm inclined to think, yeah, it would have. But I want to focus in on a particular thing. Ahithophel knows, as will David's people, we'll see in just a minute, that the core of this conflict is David and Absalom. And Ahithophel says, I don't need to kill everybody. I just need to kill David. As soon as I kill David, it's over. It's all about David. If I can kill David, that'll be it. We're going to see in just a minute, the people on David's side, they know it too. And when they go out to battle, they specifically tell David, stay back. 
They, they don't care about us. Just stay back. They only care about you. If we flee the battle, they won't pursue us because you're not with us. In a really, I don't know, sad way, David and Absalom become the focal point of so much misery in Israel because David was unwilling to do what was righteous. Now we do see, however, his spy pays off. Ahithophel gives this counsel. 17.7, Then Hushai said to Absalom, This time the counsel of Ahithophel that is given is not good. My counsel is that by all Israel be gathered to you from Dan to Beersheba as the sand of the sea is uh, for multitude and that you go to battle in person. Ithabel says, I'll take some guys. I'll go right now. We'll go get David. We'll kill him. That'll be it. Hushai says, no, let's wait. We'll gather everybody. We'll all go. We'll all go have this big battle. In verse 14, Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai the archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel, for the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. And again, we come to this idea. This is ultimately inconsequential. God knows Absalom's going to die. This is all, in many respects, pointless. The suffering that is involved here as a, a result of sin when we think about ourselves, the outcome of our struggle with the devil, the outcome's known, right? The outcome is known. The devil will lose. We know that. The devil's going to lose. That's not up for debate. That's not up in the air. That's not a possibility that he'll win. And yet we still have to make choices. Will I be on the winning side or not? Will I do what's righteous or not? Then Hushai said to Zadok and Abiathar the priests, this is verse 15, these are the two priests that have remained in Jerusalem that are still loyal to David. Thus and so did Ahithophel counsel the elders of Israel. Thus and so have I counseled. Go therefore and send quickly to David. Do not stay tonight at the fords in the wilderness, but by all means pass over, lest the king and all the people who are with him be swallowed up. The things that David did at the end of this last week, when he's running away and he's still making plans for God to bless him, here those things pay off. As, as ultimately David is, is able to escape and he's able to get out into the wilderness and that he's not caught that night and, and what ends up happening? When Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey and went off uh, home to his own city. He set his house in order and hanged himself and he died and was buried in the tomb of his father. What about Ahithophel? He was a wise man. He had some good counsel. I think his plan would have paid off. And he could have chosen to remain loyal to David, but he did not. This story is a lesson in consequences, the consequences of our decisions. Ahithophel, ultimately a wise guy, ultimately well-respected, but I think because he had decided to be with Absalom instead of David, this was the end result, his death. And these are things, again, that David had set up back in the midst of his despair, his flight from Jerusalem. Even as he's running away, he's thinking, I guess I've done something wrong. This is my punishment. But I'm still going to do what I can to ensure success in the future. And I, I want to be, uh, sort of make this application. There's times in our life where we're suffering when, when things are going badly. If we give in to despair, we stop trying, we give up. We cut off future avenues for God to bless us. Maybe we're suffering right now, but we can still make plans, still do the best that we can, still try to do things that God can bless. And even though we're suffering right now, God can pay off those things in the future if we don't give up right now. That's what we see in this story that David did. What happens? 
18, 1 through 4. Then David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands, commanders of hundreds. This gives you an idea. This isn't some small group that David has. He has thousands, enough that he has, needs multiple commanders for thousands. And David sent out the army, one-third under Joab, one-third under Abishai, uh, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai. Remember Ittai? Ittai the Gittite from last couple weeks ago? This Gittite, he's not even an Israelite. He says, I'm going to go with you, David. And David's like, no, you're not even an Israelite. Go home. And Ittai's like, no, I'm going to stay. I'm loyal to you. Here he is, put in charge of the army, third of the army. The king said to the men, I might go out with you. But the men said... You shall not go out, for if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it's better that you send us help from the city. The king said to them, whatever seems best to you, I will do. The thing to note, this is exactly the kind of thing that God warned them about a king. You guys can have a king. You remember way back when, when they asked for Saul? You guys can have a king, but if you have a king... One of the things that, that was warned for them, Samuel warned them about, the king's going to take your sons to war. Here we see it, right here. God said, look, I'm your king. And if God had remained their king, the system of judges that he had put in place, the priests and the judges that were in Israel, this whole civil war situation, this is a war of succession. It only is a result because they wanted a king. They wanted to be like the other nations, and here's the natural results. You wanted a king, here's what comes with having a king. Wars of succession. This will not be the last war of succession in Israel. Again, consequences for our choices. In this case, consequences that I think many of the people who asked for a king didn't experience. That was decades ago at this point. Consequences that are coming upon their children and their grandchildren. They made a choice. We want a king, and their children and grandchildren are reaping the results of that, of that choice. Now, ultimately, we know Absalom is defeated. In six, uh, 18, 6 through 8, the men of Israel defeated by sword and terrain. It's kind of interesting. It says they go into a forest, and, and more people die because of the forest than because of the sword. So the, the place that they're having the battle is not very great. And then 9 through 11, Absalom happened. This is such a weird story. It's obviously providential. Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. He was riding on his mule, and the mule went under thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth. And it's such a comical situation, and his mule just keeps going. So he's, he's, you know, he's on the mule, and he's going, and then he gets his, I assume his hair, or maybe his helmet, or whatever it is, gets caught on the branches, and then the mule just keeps going. And there he is. He's stuck there. I don't know why he can't, like, he obviously doesn't have a sword. He can't, like, reach up and cut it. I don't know exactly how all that played out. And a certain man saw it and told Joab, behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. And Joab said to the man who told him, why you saw him? Why did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you 10 pieces of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, even if I felt my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, for my sake, protect the young man Absalom. Throughout the story, Joab really seems to be the hero. I think Joab is, is I wouldn't say the main character. He is kind of the main character. He's the one that makes all the good choices. He's the only one who's mature. He's the only one who has the, the whole nation's interests at heart. Because one of the things that David said as they're riding out to war, go easy on Absalom. Well, if you're a soldier with David 
and you fled Jerusalem, you're away from your family, you're loyal to David, and you hear him say, oh, I know this guy who usurped the throne, I know he's kicked me out, but, but go easy on him because he's my son. Wouldn't that be so disheartening? Which we'll see that comes up later. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life, there's nothing hidden from the king. You yourself would have stood aloof. And Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. I'm not going to argue with you about it. He took three javelins in his hand, thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And that's it. Joab is not messing around. Joab's like, we got to get this done. The civil war benefits no one. This is not good for the kingdom. It's not productive. And he said, I, even as a statement, I'm not, I will not waste time like this with you. I'm not going to waste time arguing. Would I, would I not? It doesn't matter. I'm going to kill him right now. We're going to be done with this. Verse 19. Then Amahaz, the son of Zadok, said, Let me run and carry news to the king that the Lord has delivered him from the hand of his enemies. Joab said to him, You will not carry news today. You may carry news another day. Today you shall carry no news because the king's son is dead. Joab said to the Cushite, Go tell the king what you have seen. And the Cushite ran before Joab and ran. There's an interesting story in here. We're not going to read it about sort of they race to see who can give the news first. But again, Joab demonstrating maturity. Joab knows this is not a cause for victory. This is not a cause for celebration. Joab understands what? This is not a happy day. The king's son is dead. Now, Joab did it. He understood that it needed to be done. He did not take pleasure in it. And he did not want this young man to take pleasure in it. Don't deliver the news. You're too excited about it. Let somebody else do it. This is not a cause for celebration. Behold, the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, Good news for my lord the king. Not that David's going to think that. For the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. And the king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? Again, how this must seem to his army. How this must seem to David's loyal people that are with him. He comes... He doesn't ask about how the army's faring. He doesn't ask how the battle's going. He doesn't ask how my soldiers are doing. Is my son okay? Hey, David, don't you know your son's the reason we're in this mess? And yet, it's understandable, isn't it? It's understandable. I do have a question, though. Where was this love for Absalom when David refused to engage with his son for four years? Absalom comes back, right? So Absalom murders his, whatever that is, half-brother who had raped his sister, Amnon and Tamar. Uh, Absalom murders Amnon because David wouldn't deal with it. Absalom flees. He eventually is brought back because of Joab. Joab's the only one that brings him back. And then he comes back and what? David wants nothing to do with him. David doesn't, doesn't welcome him into his house, doesn't do anything, doesn't go visit him. David doesn't do anything. And Joab has to again sort of reignite the relationship. Hey, David, you need to talk to Absalom. And then four years go by. Doesn't seem like David has very much care for Absalom over those four years. Absalom starts sowing discord and, and rebellion. David seems to be unaware, is not really connected to Absalom. No idea what's going on there. Where was his love for Absalom then? But now that it matters, now that it's over, he cares. And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. There's a song that we sang in Corral in college about this that is so poignant. Again, this is one of those situations, I'm not going to do it, but this is one of those situations where the text is just insufficient. The, just if I read it, oh my, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I have died instead of you Absalom, my son, my son. 
Don't you know he's one of two things? He's either yelling this, crying out, or maybe he's whispering it. It's not neutral, I'll tell you that. And again, the question is, where was that while Absalom was alive? Where was that care when he could have done something about it? Where was that compassion when his son needed it? It's cliched. You don't know what you have till it's gone. The tragic thing in this story is that it's David's own actions, one after the other, that lead to Absalom's rebellion and ultimate death. David is in large part, not entirely, we can't totally absolve Absalom of this, but David is in large part to blame for what happens. At every crossroads, it seems that David makes the wrong choice. And it comes to the end and he is full of regret, full of bitterness, full of sorrow. Here's the question. What relationships in your life are you neglecting right now? You could, we speculate, and we could speculate a bit. Why did David treat Absalom the way that he did? Even back at the beginning, Amnon violates Tamar, and it doesn't seem that David does anything about it. Why? Why doesn't he do anything about it? Absalom takes matters into his own hands eventually, murders Amnon, and again, it doesn't seem like David does anything about it. Absalom is eventually brought back because of Joab, and David doesn't do anything about it. Keeps pushing it down the road, unwilling to engage, unwilling to deal with it. Maybe he's uncomfortable. Maybe it's too much. Maybe he's got other stuff going on. Maybe he's too busy. Maybe he doesn't know what to do. Could be any number of things. We could speculate there. Reasons why we neglect the things we're supposed to do, specifically in relationships. What are you waiting for? More importantly, how will you feel if things go poorly. One way or the other, right? Could lead to estrangement. In the case of Absalom, it's death, which is a tragedy, right? The tragedy that we're all hoping doesn't happen to us. But would you rather be uncomfortable now or grieve later? If we're neglecting things in our life we're supposed to do in our relationships with people, maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's a child, maybe it's a friend, whatever that is, things that you should be addressing and you just choose not to over and over and over, the longer you wait, the more likely it is you'll end up in David's position, full of bitterness and sorrow and regret. Or you can choose to do something about it now. Maybe it's hard, maybe it's uncomfortable, maybe it's awkward, maybe it's difficult. But the alternative is, at the end of life, you look back and you wish that you would have done things differently. Learn from David's failure. And don't wait. Doesn't end there. 19.5. Joab came into the house and to the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines. You have 
spat on them. They died for you. They went to battle for you. They ran away from their homes for you because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. Job's not pulling any punches. And this is why I say Job's the adult in the story. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead, then you would be pleased. Really harsh words from Joab. Particularly in light of, and Joab must know this, his sons just died. But what is he at risk of? Now therefore arise, go and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night, and it will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. Things are bad, things are horrible, in large part because of David's own decisions. And Joab's saying what? Don't make it worse. Your actions are demonstrating that you care more about the enemy than you do about your own people, people who are loyal to you. Now, it kind of sounds harsh, right? His sons just died. Man, Joab, wait a few days. But Joab's point is, we can't wait a few days. If you continue on like this, you will be abandoned. The people that fought and bled and died for you, they will leave you because you're demonstrating to them you don't care about them. You don't love them. You don't love the people that have fought and bled and died for you. You love the people that, that made this all horrible. Then the king arose, took a seat in the gate, and the people were told, Behold, the king is sitting in the gate, and all the people came before the king. David's failures are lessons in priorities, right? Priorities. What is Joab worried about? He's worried about the next part of the kingdom saga. Joab is not just thinking about David. Joab is thinking about the nation as a whole. That's why I say again, Joab seems to be the only one demonstrating any sort of maturity in the story. Joab's concerned about, yes, we won this particular fight, but what about tomorrow? What about the people? What about the rest of the people who are suffering for your actions, David, who are, who are bearing the burden of your sin? What about them? Again, particularly powerful in light of our study on laments, that David is grieving as he should, grieving his son, grieving his own inadequacy, grieving what he should have done, what he could have done. But life doesn't stop, especially for a person like David. He's king. And with the power and the responsibility and the ability to rule comes a certain level of responsibility to care not just about his own suffering, but about the suffering of all of the people, right? Isn't that what he's responsible for? Again, what about the hundreds or thousands of people who died for David's sake, the people who died in a very real way because of David? And again, we ask these questions. Who suffers for our sin? It's not just me. It's not just, in this case, my immediate family. For many of us, it's not just going to be my immediate family. It's not the people necessarily that should suffer for my sin. Who should suffer for It should be me, right? If I'm the one who sins, if I'm the one who does wrong, I should be the one who suffers for it. That's not how it works. That's not how life is. How do we react? What moves us to compassion, to grief and sorrow? What moves us? to try to make things better. In the life of David, he comes to the end of Absalom's life, and I think David is filled with regret. But he's in a very real danger at this moment of compiling and compounding more things to regret. 
if he continues in his grief and not doing anything, continues to neglect his responsibility. Because isn't that all that this is about? He neglected his responsibility as king. First in what he did to Bathsheba. Second in how he dealt with Amnon and Tamar. Third in how he dealt with Absalom. Now he's about to do it again. Neglect his responsibility to the people. And Joab's point is get off your butt and do something. Not just do something. Do what's right in our lives. Sin compounds upon sin as we continue to neglect the things we're supposed to do. It only gets worse. At a certain point, we have to make the decision no more. It gets more difficult the longer we go, right? It gets more difficult the longer we go without doing what's right. The longer we do, the longer we go without acting the way we should, the harder it gets. But you can't say, I'm not going to do it because it's too hard because tomorrow it's going to be harder. And the day after that, it's going to be harder. And there's going to be more consequences and more difficulty and more struggle. The easiest time to make things right is when? Right now. I don't, I don't even know how hard it is, but I know that the easiest time is right now. Because tomorrow it's only going to be harder. And in two months, it's only going to be harder. The easiest time to start doing what is right is now. I want to end with maybe what David might have read as encouragement for himself, or I don't know, maybe Joab's thought. As we think about, we come to this application for us. The struggle with Absalom, David's son, who dies and ultimately was an enemy of the people. I want to end with these verses about family. Absalom ultimately, because maybe of David's choices, but ultimately what Joab is presenting to him here is, you need to think about more than your blood. You need to think about God's people as a whole, which is what we need to do. Matthew 10, 34 through 39. Do not think that I have come to bring peace on the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. And again, this is not literal like it was with David, but we think about this in our application. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and the person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Joab is encouraging David to have this mentality. Absalom was your enemy. You have people here that are loyal to you, that are your people, they're God's people. That's who you need to be thinking about. In our lives, this may end up being the way that it is. What was at stake for David was an earthly kingdom. What's at stake for us is eternity. And the people that we are going to spend eternity with may not be our earthly family. Who's it going to be? It's going to be the people who have chosen to follow God. But the promise is what? 1929. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sister or father or mother or children or lands, anyone who's left those things for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Many who are first will be last and the last first. David's priorities were out of whack. Our priorities, if we are like David, 
can lead us. In David's case, it was to the, the detriment of a nation. In our case, can lead us to eternal destruction if we will not put God's will first and choose today, not tomorrow, not in a month, not in a week, we'll choose today to start doing what's right. Because it only gets harder from here. As we conclude, we offer the invitation. We're going to sing this song in just a minute. Jesus offers that promise. Whoever can choose to do what's right, prioritize his will, will receive a hundredfold, and in the future, eternal life. That's the offer. Whatever it is that you're struggling with, I don't know what it is. I know you've got stuff, though. You've got stuff you're struggling with. I know it. Don't wait to make it right. And if we can help you, do we want to help? Yeah, we do. We want to help. Because we know it's hard to do it by ourselves. Come while we stand and sing.